Hello and good morning to Dateline New Haven. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. Roland Lamar has helped make New Haven tick, especially in Hartford, where since 2010, he has represented East Rock and Fair Haven as the 96th District State Representative in the House of Representatives. He and his colleagues just completed an exhausting extended session just to pass a budget. Roland has survived and is in the studio today displaying the scars, ready to reflect on the lessons and to look forward to the equally charged political year ahead. And uh, just to remind you, we are we usually do Mayor Monday, and it is Monday. Roland is not the mayor, though I can't, I don't know if it's ever crossed his mind to try to be. <laughs> but uh, the mayor, Harp, is off this week, taking a well-earned vacation after the election season. Roland, thanks so much for coming into the studio. It's always great to have you. Thank you very much, boss. It's great to be here. Yeah. So how did you make out the, the session? It took us more than almost four months after the session was supposed to end. And by law, we were supposed to have a budget till we finally got a budget that the legislature passed and the governor signed. Your party was technically in power, though I would argue we became a Republican state up there under your watch. What did you think about how the session ended? Are you joining those people who are cheering the fact that Connecticut had a bipartisan budget in which Republicans and Democrats found common ground and compromised? Was that, was that a good thing? Well, look, Paul, I'll be honest with you. This was almost like two sessions this year. There was the session that we had that ended on its statutorily defined date, first Wednesday after the first Monday in June. Now, why do they just come up with that stuff, the first day for the first of the first? How the hell are we supposed to follow that? (laughs) That is a a rather absurd construct (laughs) that we followed, you know, (laughs) deliberately. um, And it's served us relatively well, except with few notable exceptions this year being one. And then we entered a second session, largely, which was budget-based from that point forward. Uh, early in session, maybe mid-May, uh, we determined Everything that... Everything else died, and it was just going to be try to get a budget. Yeah, we knew that the budget was not going to get done by June 7th, and so uh, you know, we focused these last few months on trying to build that bipartisan budget. And to be honest with you, I'm not happy with the end product, uh, but to be fair to those who were in the room, who were negotiating it, um, and I place incredible amount of trust in uh, Senator Looney being one of the chief architects and negotiators on this, um, th- they felt that this was the best budget that they could get out with a, enough votes to sustain a governor's veto. Um, I, I frankly, you know, I, I'm, I, I entered that budget vote not sure which way I was going to go, knowing I was going to be disappointed in myself, disappointed in myself, uh, regardless if I voted yes or no. Uh, ultimately, I determined to vote no. I just, I didn't want to uh, seen, you seen, uh, sanctioning these sweeps of environmental efficiency funds and our green bank and uh, elimination of earned income tax credit dollars and a variety of other you know important principles that I thought we had achieved over the last few years. I, I did not want to um, endorse those cuts and I felt like they were the wrong direction for our state and I felt ultimately we started from a, a construct in which liberals like myself and I self-identify as a, as a, as a liberal um, we were never going to win that battle uh, of a bipartisan developed budget. And ultimately, the final product uh, was not something I felt I could condone or, or endorse. So you voted no. So I voted no. Yeah. You turned your back on your party leaders like Martin Looney, who are trying to get the work done. Yeah, no, I did. And, and, and again, I would have felt bad endorsing <laughs> those things had I voted yes. I, I would have felt like I was selling out some core uh, liberal priorities and accomplishments over the last six years. And I do, I still to this day feel bad voting no because I know that Senator Looney, someone who I've looked up to and who has delivered every major piece of progressive legislation through that Senate in the last 20 years, everything has gone through him. 
Um, I have complete faith in him that that was the best budget that he could have gotten out. Because uh, you got sandbagged by a couple of Democrats who played to their Trumpian white suburban base first in gutting housing, affordable housing law, and then voting for the Republican version of the budget, which the governor didn't sign, but then put into play a bipartisan budget because there was not, you were not, you did not have, you had too small a majority to pass a Democratic budget. Yeah, we have Democrats a tied Senate. You. Right, it's an 18 Senate in the houses. So I want to get back to two points, Roland sure. Marr. One is that larger question you raised about when you decide to vote against your leadership when they're doing the best they can and what it means when your own party gets uh, sandbags you. But first, I want to get into the specifics you raised. Every budget is a stew. It always includes some compromise, even when it's, only your, even when it's your own party that passes it. Because two years ago, it was Democratic suburbanites who passed such an unjust education allocation that a judge called it unconstitutional. You were giving money from poor districts to rich districts, and that was you guys without the Republicans. So... If you're going to be a legislator, if you're going to make laws, if you're going to try to have some influence, you're going to have to compromise and decide when something just you can't vote for and when you got to take what you can, like Ronald Reagan said, take 60% and call it a victory because in the real world, that's what you get. What specifically, you mentioned environmental sweeps. Most of us don't know really what that is. What were the parts of the budget that made it impossible for you to vote for it? Well, there are a few things. Uh, and to start with, the, the Again, one of the major victories that I claim in my tenure uh, serving on the Finance Committee, uh, being elected in 2010, starting in 2011, and being one of the people who helped push this issue through the House was the Earned Income Tax Credit, um, which we developed at the state level, which was supposed to uh, take the federal level that you receive, an Earned Income Tax Credit, and match that to 30%. And we have, year after year, reduced that credit uh, to the point that it's at 22.5% now, which honestly is what just... Is that, what does that mean, 22.5%? So, if, you if you're too rich to be on welfare, you make too much money, but you make not enough money to live on, you get to deduct from your taxes. It's, your, it the, is your, the very definition of the working poor. That's who's eligible for this, because you have to have a job and you have to earn income to be eligible for it. It and, was basically Bill Clinton's way to... to um, support the poor without raising taxes. It was taxes before by Bill cutting. Clinton. I mean, this, this but, I mean, was... he promoted that in a big way as a way when you couldn't quote unquote raise taxes. What you did is you just cut taxes on the poor. That's exactly right. And, and ultimately the product we have today ended up balancing our budget on the backs of the poor, namely through this earned income tax credit. By... So what was the credit? What does it mean that it's a 22.5%? So now say you get a thousand dollars from the federal government in an earned income tax credit. Uh, you would, as a Connecticut resident, get Twenty-two point five percent of that, or two hundred and twenty-five dollars, uh, as your as your state. And tax how much credit. do you have to earn between what and what for that? Uh, it depends on your family size, but uh, qualified individuals, I think, go up to fifty-two thousand dollars for a family of four. I believe it's so. Basically, um, if you pay any taxes, but you earn under fifty-two thousand for a family of four, you get to take you get a credit for twenty-two point five percent. Of that, of your thing. federal equivalency, yes. What do you mean for? Oh, what you're paying in federal taxes? Well, so the it, it, it's all based off of your federal tax return. So if the federal government, based upon at taking your your average income and your deductions, they ultimately determine how much of an earned income tax credit, how much uh, tax do you deserve back from the federal government, rather than us having a whole separate sheet or a whole separate form or 
us having to recalculate it's it still ourselves. based on your state tax. It's still based upon because how much Because there is a federal income tax. So yes. what did we cut it from what to what? Uh, 27.5 down to 22.5. Did we cut also the eligibility limits or just how much you We, we did not. The eligibility limits come into place on income when we pushed people off of Medicaid, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. another... Okay, so number one for you, a bottom line issue is earned income tax credit. That's right. What was the next bottom line issue? Uh, the number of individuals we pushed off of Medicaid. And how many was that? Uh, that ultimately, there were different numbers over the course of the of the year. We we, we It's probably about 7,700 additional people were pushed off of Medicaid. Uh, and that's on the backs of what we did a few years ago, which was 20,000 additional people pushed off of Medicaid. Uh, this is the poorest of the poor uh, people who, um, who receive Medicaid in our state. And uh, we just continue to define the eligibility limits. So now if it's, you're at 128% of the federal poverty limit uh, you, or above, you don't receive uh, subsidized health care. What, was no, what, what else were your bottom lines here? Uh, the rating of our energy efficiency dollars on now, every one. Because every single no, no, one what, of us. What is that? Okay, so every single one of us on our electric bill, and I, yeah, I encourage people to look at their electric bill, they're contributing a portion of their payment every month to an energy efficiency fund, which is supposed to get us away from fossil fuels ultimately uh, and make us energy independent, have our state invest in clean energy, renewable resources. Uh, and those dollars have been collected from every one of us for years, and it sits in a fund, and those dollars are reinvested uh, towards solar installations or um, uh, combined heating systems or uh, water installations, whatever you can find that is a renewable resource, uh, we would invest in with those dollars so that we can eventually get away from um, uh, fossil fuels. And those dollars were rated and put in into a one-time sweep to balance our budget. Which means it just helped us for this oh, one year. Oh, sweet means we take the money out we of it. We take the money out revenue, of it. We put it so into So that will not go to promoting alternatives to fossil that's fuels, right. even though that's the basis on which. Now, you sound like those conservatives who are mad about rating, uh, energy, rating transportation funds and they want a lockbox, which liberals often don't like because they say we should have a general fund and uh, democratically decide where the money goes. Yeah, no, I, I, I side ultimately with a lot of the conservatives who feel like we are not investing enough in transportation as well. Um, and in this particular case, it was it was but clearly fine. We have too many of these lockboxes and dedicated funds. Doesn't that take the democracy out of decision making? And we say certain interest groups get a guarantee on specific line items when, in fact, we should be doing a budget as a whole. This is different uh, from a traditional lockbox because it never was actually something that people were paying taxes on. It was dedicated from the beginning from their energy bills. From their energy bills, a specifically designated component of that okay, was so towards energy income tax credit, Medicaid, people thrown off Medicaid, rating the energy efficient funds. What else did you object uh, to? A rating of the Green Bank, which was um, a, where we actually utilize a number of dollars to leverage private market dollars to do solar installation. So what is the Green Bank? The Green Bank is a, one of the first in the nation award-winning structure uh, that we developed in 2013, I believe, uh, which was um, intended to utilize these millions of dollars that we'd collected to go out to the private market, to leverage private funds, to ensure that they're investing in alternative fuels in Connecticut. Because we knew that our dollars themselves, you know, if we collect a few million dollars, we're not going to be able to radically change, uh, you know, our, our energy resource mix in Connecticut. Uh, we exist in a more regionalized market. And we needed more dollars, uh, private market dollars, to invest in the types of resources uh, that we need to, to really expand utilization in Connecticut. So the Green Bank was taking those dollars, finding uh, partners for us, 
across the country who would invest in those resources. So that structure was diminished, um, essentially took almost over half of the dollars from them. Uh, so it makes it much harder for them to go out to the private market to leverage funds to develop green uh, construction industries. The And what, where did that money go? Uh, it went into just one time. It was a one-time sweep. We use it for this year to solve and next year because we took money from next year as well uh, to solve our current budget uh, sort of, I don't want to call it a deficit because we're not quite sure where we'll end up at the end of the year, but our current uh, perceived deficit uh, was solved by taking these dollars in these, each of these two annuals mm-hmm. and the likelihood that we'll get those dollars back is, is quite limited. So we've talked about earned income tax, we've talked about Green Bank and uh, energy efficiency, we've talked about Medicaid. Were there any bottom lines? I'm not asking if you were everything you didn't like in the budget. What were the sort of tip, were these the tipping points? Those were the tipping points. Was there anything else? Well, there were things that we didn't like, right? I mean, like ultimately cutting the car tax reimbursement rate to urban areas hurts my residents. It's fundamentally unfair. Like cutting pilot hurts New Haven residents here, but underfunding ready, education. You, like, I mean, it, Greenwich is getting an $865,000 bonus this year, while New Haven's probably going to see a multi-million dollar cut. These, these were things that, you know, frustrate me. And, and like, ultimately I understood where the formula was going and why it was being developed in such a way that I probably could have lived with a little of that. Mm-hmm. But on top of all of these other uh, yanks and pulls and 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 movements that just ended up bu- balancing our budget on the backs of poor folks. I, I just I couldn't vote yes. I couldn't in my conscience vote yes. So what would you have what would you have done instead to make up that money? We had a one point five billion dollar projected deficit for a two year forty billion or so dollar budget at one point. That had to be made up. That's a lot of money. Yeah, stuff was going to have to get cut. Yeah. What would you have done to avoid what you hated in this budget? And this is where I have to give incredible credit to Senator Looney and negotiators in the room because they were not going to operate with the role in the Mars of the world on what I'm about to say. Mm-hmm. They do not have enough votes to do what I'm about to say. I have to realize that and all of your listeners need to realize it. My answer to this is increasing the income tax limit on high income individuals Uh we need to consider tolls. We're the only state on the eastern seaboard that does not collect tolls in one form or another. And we uh, need to consider giving municipalities additional revenue raising tools instead of them being solely reliant on the state of Connecticut. Such as uh, the local income tax. Lo- lo- local option tax, taxes tax. of some kind. Yeah. But so tolls, like whether it's on like bars and restaurants and downtown. You're still talking about raising to six point, from 6.9% to 7.5%. Yeah. The, the tax on incomes over half million or million uh, over half a million family incomes over half million. Uh, and, and I think there's growing numbers, the higher you go, like if you were to say, well, we'll only raise income taxes over a million, uh, then you'll get a few more votes. But ultimately I think to reach the revenue that we're talking about, you need to structure income tax rates, uh, two additional income tax rates, one for family incomes over half a million and those over a million. And, and what I would think, that go from what to what? I think right now they're at, uh, all at 6.99. I would move them to 7.5, 7.75. So you uh, go 7.5 for the half million to million and 7.75 yeah. above. Now what the Democrats who, who abandoned ship and made this a Republican legislature, they argued coming from Brantford, come from Milford, we just can't raise taxes anymore. It wasn't that the main argument that we can't go along with any budget. That, but but the, the budget they voted against did not include those income tax raises. So what was in it that they objected to? 
There were local option taxes in the Democratic budget. That What's a local passed. option tax? Uh, we essentially allowed local municipalities to generate their own revenue to offset some cuts uh, that were coming their way. Such as? Uh, I think it was, a lo- it was like a 1% um, entertainment tax, essentially restaurants mm-hmm. and bars uh, downtown. 1% of those dollars would be utilized at the local level. Uh, extension of hotel taxes. There were a series of small local options. But that taxes. doesn't affect the suburbs the way it affects the city. It, it fit into a narrative that Democrats in this state are running against, which is one, and fairly, we've lost a lot of seats. We had super majorities in the House and the Senate uh, that we have lost cycle after cycle. And so the remaining Democrats feel like this narrative is what's holding us back and holding uh, Democratic policies in other areas back is that we're losing on the budget. We're losing on how we manage our uh, fiscal uh, security as a state. And they felt like this narrative the Republicans were winning on, even though the evidence tells us all evidence tells us people do not move for taxes like one guy, two guys might move. But, you know, we have the highest number of millionaires and billionaires per capita uh, of the state, and that right, number the has narrative grown. is that they're all leaving. Etna left, GE left, Alexion left. The people who the mo- a few hedge fund people leave for, uh, Greenwich, uh, Greenwich, and other parts of Lower Fairfield County, and all of a sudden, our revenue projections were down quarter after quarter after quarter because of high income earners paying less than we thought. Yes, because high income earners paid less than they thought, but not because they're moving. One guy moves, an older gentleman in his mid seventies who was moving anyway. Uh, moved and like people wanted to point to that guy and essentially say, well, because Who he left, guy? I forget what his name was, but he was, he was one of those Greenwich billionaires. And uh, I, I wanted, I, I don't want to put the wrong name out there. Uh, in my mind, I know who it is, but it's a quick Google search because he was pretty vocal on his way out. And, um, uh, you know, we've seen the Brennan Institute and a series of other economic institutes do evaluations of this and essentially say, you know, we've had two income tax raises in Connecticut over the last eight years. And after both of them, our percentage of millionaires and billionaires actually increased in Connecticut. But the narrative is that we have seen a loss in revenue and a loss in major employers while we have raised taxes a lot. Yeah. And, and part of that are changes to the economy that have nothing to do with our tax rates. That is the replacement. That was a, that was a global financial crisis hit that hurt Connecticut more than any other state in which we displaced RBS and UBS, Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, UBS, I actually forget what that, uh, those initials stand for, uh, two large uh, trading floors in Stanford, Connecticut, with hundreds to thousands of employees, all making uh, substantial amounts of money. Those jobs are replaced with um, middle-income to lower-income retail jobs. Like That's where our economy has shifted. Where did the trading jobs go? They disappeared. Like With, with post-2000... Uh, seven to 2011 job losses in those categories, those jobs generally just, just disappear. But Roland Lamar has reappeared on Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM, your home for community radio at 103.5 FM, large, deep New Haven, org. And state representative Roland Lamar is telling us why he voted against a state budget arrived at by his party's leaders. Now in this latest session. So we've talked about your trigger points that, that you were able to live with some pretty painful cuts for New Haven, like pilot payment, lumen taxes going down, the uh, some of the education funding going down. But then when they raided the uh, gr- the Green Bank and the Energy Efficient Fund and cut the earned income tax increase credit, credit program, so while they weren't willing to raise taxes on rich people, they fe- they did in effect raise taxes on the working poor and the uh, throwing people off Medicaid. That's when you felt you couldn't go any further. Yeah, and pilot and education fund cuts, there are ways you can mitigate those things 
uh, in other areas. Like you can do a series of notwithstandings in school construction to help soften the blow for our boards of education and what they have to reimburse the state for when they overspend in some areas. We, we do that every year. Our board of education will come up to us and say, well, we overspent in this area. Can you get a law that essentially says we don't have to repay it? There are ways that you can mitigate against some of those cuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the city level, there are things that we could do uh, to help make right for the city of New Haven. Uh, and ultimately, we were in communication with city leaders across the state, essentially saying, you know, through a series of tough cycles, we've been able to keep you whole and or expand the number of dollars that are coming home locally. This year is going to be different. Uh, we, we had a sense that that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were able to communicate that well in advance of them having to come up with their final budgets. Uh, they didn't know the right number. They didn't have any ability to budget because we were so late in getting our act together. Uh, but they knew that a cut was coming. So we felt we could mitigate some of those cuts, and I felt like I could live and I could justify where we were going. It was the cuts that ultimately hurt individuals who have no opportunity to recover from substantial life changes that we were incorporating in that budget. Pushing people off of Medicaid hurts in a way that an individual cannot recover from. Taking the earned income tax credit and reducing the number of dollars in their pocket hurts them in a way that they cannot recover from. With people rely on with food, food insecurity in New Haven, for instance, there are people who are missing out on meals kids That's because right. of those decisions. <laughs> but Lauren, let me now put you in the position of responsible lawmaker. How many Democrats voted against this? What was the final score in this budget in the House? Oh, oh the final budget um, was 127 to 23, I believe. So everyone went for this. So basically, you could you could take a stand and not be hurt with your urban constituency but you're still not hurting your party's leaders because you were a safe no. Does that take away from some of the courage of what you did? And could it look just like posturing by a politician who's in fact very involved in getting his party elected, does care about his issues very much, but, um, but in the end, you had the freedom to do this without really bothering your party leaders because this thing was going to pass anyway. Yeah, I in mean, other words, I, I no, I, in other words, no profile of courage award for this. Yeah, vote. no, I, th- I think that's exactly right. And I and like if it seems like I'm trying to claim one, I, I want to like uh, disabuse people of that notion <laughs> that this wasn't a profile in courage. I wasn't a swing vote on this issue. Um, ultimately, uh, this was passing whether I voted yes or no. The incredible work that negotiators and leaders did to get to this final product, I felt like need need to be articulated because it was. What if it had been close? What if your vote was going to determine it and Martin Looney said, Roland, we got the best we could with what we fought for. I need your vote. What would you have done? Uh, I, I think I still would have voted uh, no. I would have voted no. You would have said, Marty, no, even though what we're going to get is some, Marty will say, hey, Roland, you know as well as I do that we're going to get something worse if you vote no now. Because if it goes into another crisis, the governor either is going to have to make more cuts because his purview of what he can cut is limited under the uh, under rules of the state budget you're really going to hurt your people more if you vote no and this doesn't pass i would have voted i'll tell you why i mean the, the senator looney angle is difficult for me because right. i respect him so greatly and, and he's work taking he's it very done. hard the criticism he's getting in new haven i know he's taking this very he hard is, he is and he does not deserve it and i'll, I'll be clear with people on that he does not deserve it uh he's dealing with a circumstance that like in that we got a product was remarkable but I'll tell you why I still would have voted no. Because at some point, again, I, I self-confess to being a very liberal person and my worldview is shaped by trying to ensure that we help and not hurt as many people as possible uh, in vulnerable situations. And I, at some point, we were no longer listened to. 
What if they said, and they might have had reason for saying this, if you kill this budget with your vote that's really going to determine the outcome, the Democrats will definitely not have a majority in the legislature next year, and all these things you care about are going to get decimated, and never mind that you're no longer going to be the uh, chair of the po- Planning and Development Committee. Yeah, and I, I would disagree with that construct. I feel like the half the reason we're suffering electorally is because we're not embracing true progressive policies that will put the state first. You and I, and I think most of our listeners know that if we invest in places like New Haven, Hartford, Springfield, uh, uh, Rail Line, plus Stanford and, and, and Middletown and a whole bunch of urban core cities in this state, that is how we make ourselves attractive to the Etnas and the GEs and all those businesses that you listen right, to. We a few did a show ago. on this, you and them at Clarity's, where you were arguing that the real reason, if you look at what G's words were and Alexion's words and Aetna, they left because other states that actually have higher taxes than we do were investing in the infrastructure, the economic infrastructure, the infrastructure, the education, education, so transportation. We, that we should be arguing for more investment. That's right. Like uh, the future of this state. Look, there was a time when Connecticut was, you know, at the top of its peer group amongst all states and attracting you know, people who want to live in robust, vibrant, beautiful, leafy suburbs. And when that was all of the rage, Connecticut excelled because we had the best version of that. That is not what people are looking for right now. If you look at demographics, folks over the age of 55 are returning back to urban areas and people under the age of 30 want to live in vibrant So why areas. is the narrative that we've taxed and taxed and taxed and people are really mad. Independents were the largest voting block, over 800,000 in Connecticut, are really mad at the Democrats. They blame Malloy. You have no 18 people currently running for governor because it's like this given that the Republicans are going to sweep next year. Why are people in Connecticut not seeing your way? Are they dumb? No, because ultimately, at the end of the day, when people vote and when they see their pocketbook, they're concerned with protecting what they have and they want to just get a little bit more. They want their lives to be a little bit easier. They're going to fight and work every day. They don't want to take steps backward. And you're saying that more of those people vote than the people you were concerned about with the earned income tax credit? That's right. And if they feel like something's going to come at a cost to them, even if it's in the long-term good, they're not sure that they can afford the cost. Or, so they, I, or that they can trust the politicians to steer the long-term good. That's And that's a fair criticism. And yeah. particularly when we raid money for one-time sweeps that solve no long-term budget goals. <laughs> so what's this going to mean for 2018, Roland Lamar? You're active in other state campaigns. And right now we are tied Democrats and Republicans in the legislature where because there's a Democrat in the Senate, because there's a Democratic lieutenant governor, they get to break the tie because we saw that wasn't good enough. Uh, the House is what's the margin now? Uh, it is 79 to 72. And people feel that can really flip. Yes. And Governor, why? what's it going to take next year? What races are you going to be focusing on? And where there are all these progressive groups that have sprung up since Trump. We saw this in other states in these elections that they're going to go after that suburban vote who they feel can be peeled away. In Connecticut, our leaders don't have the same kind of Trumpian reputation. You know, Len Fasano. I mean, I guess if Timothy Herbst runs for governor, but, you know, Mark Bouton's not going to come across that way, even if his policies are similar. If he runs as the governor candidate for Republicans, um, definitely not Dr. Prasad. Srinivasan. Srinivasan, definitely not uh, Steve Opsitnik, some of these people. How are you going to make the case against them? Because you have to point to what they would ultimately enact. And Tim Herbst is an interesting case because he has actually, I think, tried to mold himself as a mini Trump. And yeah. he is actually the preferred candidate of their party chair, Jay Romano. I mean, those. They, he's those, a Trump fan. Yeah. He's a Trump fan. And, and Herbst and Romano are really close personally. Uh, and, you know, Romano's worked on all of his campaigns, they went to college together. They personally are, are really close, and this will be interesting to see how their party um, 
develops in the next six months in the wake of these elections that we just saw nationally. Uh, but also, you're you're right that Connecticut's Republican leadership has never really done a full on embrace of of Donald Trump. And if they're not, they do have an ability to pick their worst candidates for governor and Senate. So Democrats continue to beat him for governor and Senate. Last time, Governor Malloy had record low popularities and won by just destroying the Republican candidate. But what if they do pick a Bounton, considering, assuming his health gets better, if they do pick a Clarities, if they do pick, if Sal's not running, but if they do pick a um, Sitnik or a Svindigas. Because you can point to any one of these people and ultimately the policies that they would enact would be very similar. I mean, people like to, I mean, I don't know why they like to forget. They like to forget the sort of anti-immigrant fervor that was developed in Danbury under a, a congenial, likable guy, Mark Bond. I like Mark. Mark is a guy that you could hang out with and let you like the guy. But under his administration, they certainly went out of their way to target. They were national poster that's right. city for anti-immigrant A couple, policies. a year and a half ago, North Carolina passes HB1 that essentially is the, the, what they're uh, calling the bathroom bill, which is absurd in its construct, but essentially, you know, telling people where they couldn't couldn't go to the bathroom uh, because of how they identified themselves uh, by gender. You know, that bill came up in Connecticut, and Themis Claritus, who's a moderate, like a, a reasonable, smart woman who works really hard on behalf of her caucus, voted to essentially <laughs> go along with a Republican majority on that and not recognize people's ability to choose. We had the bill choice. here, yeah. We'd have to put gender uh, protections in our uh, state constitution, and she voted no. Boy, the business community hates that. We were four years ahead of that national conversation when we did it. Uh, Senator Winfield actually but did led it on pay, it. It didn't pass, though. It did it. pass. It passed, but the Republican caucus all voted no on it. But it went to our constitution? Yeah. We have oh. now have gender identification. I was uh, no idea about that. Yeah. We, we were so far ahead of it um, that it, it didn't quite So capture. who would you like to see be the Democratic candidate for governor? Oh, well, it's really early and it's not early. I mean, it's, it's early in the construct of public financing, what, which we have in the state of Connecticut. You do not need to be working three, four years out to develop the war chest. Why hasn't Wyman announced yet what she's going to do? I, I think because she is different than governor Malloy and she did not want to be caught in a situation where maybe the leadership of our state is moving in different directions. Like the, the current gubernatorial, um, you know, okay, but now the budget's over. The budget's so if she's over. Gonna run, so she needs to say what she's going to do. She should. She should make up her mind soon. I think, um, and she can actually show, uh, you know, where she is different than. Are you Governor hoping Moy. she'll run? I am hoping she's, that she'll run. To be honest with you, do you think that having people over seventy running might not be the smartest strategy for the Democratic Party? Yeah. Look, I get the optics on not uh, optics because she's very vibrant. There's no question that she's. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. The person. optics aren't. It's the, not actually about Nancy Wyman. It's about right. Howard Dean coming here and saying the baby boomers got to move aside and we got to cultivate younger leadership. We saw where Dan Drew comes in. He's part of that. No, we do group. need to cultivate younger leadership. We do need to ensure that our state is our leadership is reflecting our actual state as a whole, and we are, um, you know, growing in diversity. We're younger state. Uh, where our growth is, is in our younger population and a more diverse population. Uh, the future of our state is certainly in our urban centers. It'd be great if we had someone who understood uh, what it was to come from a place like New Haven and Hartford, the places that are actually growing, where people are moving. Um, it would be great if our leadership reflected that. Nancy Wyman may not have that resume, but she has one uh, that I think progressives would definitely get behind. Uh, she's certainly, yes. She's good on the stump. She's great on the stump. She's got great command over a, a you know, every right. issue. She's been and, experienced. She could do the job. And she's personal. Like she, she understands 
policy at the macro level, but she could have a conversation. How do you with feel you about around. the existing field, like Dan Drew, Middletown Mayor? What do you think of his candidacy? Uh, I, I think he's unab unabashedly progressive, and I like that. Um, I respect that. I admire that. You know, he'll come to DTC meetings. I represent East Haven. Uh, early on, you mentioned representing uh, Worcester Square, East Rock. But I also represent a portion of East Haven. I watched him give a command performance in East Haven where he challenged folks who were saying some pretty awful things. Um, and he came right back at that at them and portrayed a vision of Connecticut that I really responded to. He's smart. He works really hard. He's got... Um, it's interesting you bring that up because you do represent East Haven too. And so your district gives both sides of the Democratic debate right now. There's this national debate and a debate in Connecticut about what strategy the Democrats should move forward to. Do they embrace their diverse base, their progressive base, the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren base? Do they say, we love, we think the future majority of this country, even now, is people of color, gay and lesbian rights, transgender rights? Or do they try to appeal to angry white um, working class people who feel left behind, not just economically, but culturally. And you have both of that. You have yeah. East Haven, which is, which is Trump country again, right? Yep. Even though they had voted for Obama, which is interesting. And you have East Rock, which is, you know, basically Berkeley on the Atlantic or in the <laughs> sound. What, how do you bridge, how do you see that playing out? Where do you go on that debate and how do you campaign in East Haven? Uh, so to be fair, I, most of my antagonistic emails and phone calls come from, East Haven. And I think it's a fair criticism to suggest that my personal politics are more aligned with my New Haven base uh, than my East Haven base. Uh, the argument has not been made strongly in these white working class communities, how shared prosperity is better than sort of protecting your own. Well, the Justice Department found that deep bigotry is was the least operative in the police department, which is a reflection sometimes of what a town wants. Has East Haven changed? Yes, East Haven has changed. I then think. Why do they keep um, electing conservative Republicans? You know, I think that's. I think it's partly because our narrative, and again, as a progressive, as a liberal, as someone who who voted for Bernie Sanders, who felt like the direction of our party needed to be uh, more in line with the messaging that was coming out of that campaign, the excitement that was inherent in that campaign. That message was also inherent and strongly felt inside of East Haven. So in that there was these dueling populist outlooks, they both resonated in these white working class communities like East Haven. The Trump Obama countries. The, the, the Trump Obama, Trump Sanders countries. Did they vote Sanders in the primary? Um, I believe that they did. I'm not sure. I, I, to be honest with you, I don't remember. Uh, but I felt like that campaign had a way of tapping into the frustration, the angers and the anxieties that people were feeling. And ultimately, if we can do that at the state level, if we can point to how an earned income tax credit isn't a benefit for African-Americans, Latinos in New Haven, it's a benefit to all working families. But yeah, I know at the end of the day, that's going to benefit more of my residents here in New Haven. It's going to give them a leg up and better advantages to, to succeed in, in the American economy. Is that true in East Haven? Because, you know, the Oregon tax credit doesn't affect all the people on Section 8, right? Unless they have pretty decent jobs. East Haven has a large percentage of folks who are eligible for their income right, tax credit. There's right. a large number I would of not assume that your New Haven constituents, percentage-wise, are more There are. They are, though. The I mean, I, I, the numbers are like, I, I think 32% of New Haven residents are eligible. I think in... Uh, East Haven, in my district, uh, my portion of East Haven, it's like 19 to 23. Okay. But that's still, that's yeah. not so far off. Right. Um, 
it, but ultimately we have to have a stronger message as progressives in Connecticut. We need to get past sort of the 2016 Clinton Sanders thing. And we just need to start painting a picture of what Connecticut can become with smart investments in transportation, our urban areas uh, and our young people. All right. And you're listening to state representative Roland Lamar of who represents East Rock, Fairhaven and a sliver of East Haven in the state legislature. Downtown. Yeah. I got a lot of, I got, oh, you lot. got downtown in Yale. I do. Oh, and you, you listen to my Dateline New Haven, WNHH. So you uh, you got downtown. So what do you think about this whole Duncan thing? So Duncan Hotel was one of the last SROs downtown, single room occupancy, where people can rent the room for $200 or less a week. They had working class people there. They uh, got cleared out because it's going to be turned into a, a boutique hotel with a university theme from Chicago developer. And the Unite Here members of the Board of Alders, people affiliated with the Unite Here unions who want that to be a union hotel, I proposed a moratorium to stop the plan in its tracks because it's eliminating SRO housing. The city administration is pretty upset about this. They say that the place is cleared out. They paid for people to find other new places. SRO is a big issue. Affordable housing was issue. There's the wrong place to do it. And you're going to stop us from getting 30 million or more dollars of investment downtown and building the tax base. The other side says, although they're not being honest about what the real agenda is here, they have legitimate issues about affordable housing, but the real argument is if we're going to have prosperity in town, who gets the benefit from that, not only in housing, but shouldn't they agree to be to have a union shop, which would make this all go away, to have United Here agreed, agree that it would be the union there, and therefore people can make enough money working that place so that, not just, like with the income tax increase, not just the wealthy benefit, but everybody, working class people benefited as well from the rival. How do you feel about that? Uh, to the first, I think, central point, development moratoriums in this state I, again, I chair the Planning and Development uh, Committee at the state legislature. I see this uh, and how it impacts development uh, across Connecticut. Development moratoriums are almost always used in the state to prevent affordable housing from being constructed. That is almost uniformly what happens in Connecticut when but you see a community. Still, but that's separate. Here. That's separate, except we're giving credence to that to- that sort of uh, local maneuver. And I, so I do not support a development moratorium in, in New Haven or anywhere else, particularly for an as-of-right development, which is but essentially is that, is what... But is that just a way for you to therefore not make it look like you're going against unions and the poor when you're helping out a developer? Because this really is not about stopping... If we do this, doesn't mean there will soon be New Haven moratoria on affordable housing. That's not the problem in New Haven. Yeah, well, I I, I don't know um, how it's... like Like, from the construct... Development moratoriums are bad, um, and I do not think that ultimately will yield the end result that we want. I think it's true that we need more, and like SROs are in need in downtown. The changing face of downtown is leaving out a lot of people, and we need to make sure that as we grow, that we're working with our private market developers to ensure that every development downtown has 20% affordable housing at a minimum. That is my vision for how development But there's no leverage to ensure that the Duncan, because they don't need new zoning. Right. And you can't do it in a private market, no government uh, sort of role. You cannot insert yourself. I don't think that's the but proper role But they're arguing they can. They can hold up, they can pass a, a moratorium so that, in fact, you do need to play ball Co- with the court, city. Courts would suggest otherwise. Um, and t- again, I, I think that's why, and that's why I addressed the moratorium at the, at the onset of this, because I think that is the real crux of it. The approach that they're taking with this, I think, um, has legal issues and also puts us in a bad spot where communities across Connecticut will start to develop more development moratoriums to stop affordable housing construction. We see it all of the time. There's, it, But do you really believe that a left-wing moratorium in New Haven is going to get 
and somehow influence towns that want to do it anyway to pass yes. right wing moratorium. Yes, that that's how court decisions work. Oh, so you think what is the what is the legal problem? Uh, right now, you cannot uh, like the, the what you have to do when you're considering land use applications or where you're uh, evaluating whether or not a, a specific development meets your current zoning code. You look only to the use of the land, and this is not. The use of the land. I mean, this—they'd have to insert themselves. What the what they propose to do at the Duncan runs consistent with our zoning code, and so trying to insert yourself for the specific task of limiting the development of one specific. But it doesn't mention the Duncan. It doesn't, but we all know that's what it's about, and I think courts would determine unless very carefully crafted. Well, what do you think about the general idea that if you want to build a new haven? You need to agree that there'll be a union shop so that people will make livable wages. That's why we saw the Marriott not be able to expand. It's why we saw the Omni be able to expand back in the 90s. What if they were honest? What if Unite Here told the truth and said, we believe that everyone should share in the prosperity of economic development. So if you want to build here, we want it known that you have to have a union wouldn't a lot of people support that and wouldn't your voters support that? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of people would support that if they had that conversation inherently and i think they to be fair i think you know here has done that i think no they're not admitting no, that's uh, maybe why maybe is. like the letter of that no they no, sent no one's out admitting support. no one's no one's admitting that Look, this new has haven to rising goes shop. out into community across this this city and they talk about that shared vision prosperity but there's never been a single statement that this moratorium has anything to do with the union shop and, and you know <laughs> i think that's smart on their part because i think that that's where they would run into some do you legal th- so do you think it's smart to, not to be honest with the public about what their agenda is it's Especially since the public look, if you're going to try to get a development agenda. moratorium in place, it is smart to not articulate that because so that want, is how you'll get so it. So you want out. elected officials to lie in order to pass? Oh policy. no, no, I, oh, they're I, not telling the truth about why they're doing this. I, I, I don't know. I have not talked to Alderman Bielsen or Alderman Greenberg about. Is this about a union shop or not about a union shop? In your opinion, I don't. I, I'm not intimately engaged in this. I frankly feel that yeah if we're going to have a boutique hotel downtown i would love that to be unionized i think they should have that fight after construction with their workforce and they should go in and aggressively lobby those individuals to form a union after it's constructed but they know ensure- that the leverage is now it's not later they don't they don't, have they don't actually have the leverage now i mean that's the thing like they have to try well, to insert a way to have, have leverage later. If they're doing everything as of right, what leverage would the union have later? This is a tough environment for union organizing. Donald Trump is going to be naming people to NLRB. It's going to be tough to to get a union. I agree. I just don't. I just don't think the pre-development process is the place to insert yourself in a union uh, organizing fight, particularly when there is no other government lever that you have to you have to fake one. And I don't think that that is going to create the um, the end that we're looking for. You know, I hear support you. Uh, they always have. <laughs> this might, uh, this might, you know, push me off the edge a little bit. But at the at the end of the day, like I think they know um, that I have their back in any fight that we can have legally, and I'll I'm willing to push the limits on uh, on on things in ways that other politicians haven't. I think on this one specific issue, uh, their approach is is maybe um, uh, not going to yield the result that I think it should. But it is going to yield your return in invitations to Dateline New Haven and WNHH, <laughs> your home for community radio at 103.5 FM, live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. Just a few moments left, Roland Lamar. Thank you so much for coming in on what's usually Mayor Monday, but today it's State Rep Monday. Um, you are the chair of the Planning and Development Committee. If the Democrats retain control of the House next year, what are you hoping to accomplish there in 2018? 
Well, actually, you'll have it for 2018 because the elections are for 20, the next year. So what are you hoping to do next term? So, you know, as that committee essentially interacts with local governments um, and interacts with our housing and land use and our development policies statewide, my goal is to we have our state plan of conservation development, which is being written right now, uh, which will be moved at the beginning of next session. My goal is to ensure that we're uh, putting our resources, our limited resources into urban areas, into transit corridors, investing along rail lines, bus lines, uh, that, we're pu- that we're pushing our development into areas that will yield high growth, that will get the people of Connecticut uh, Transit-oriented development. Exactly. So what do you see like around Union Station, New Haven? What would you like to see? Union Station, New Haven, I think, you know, that's a perfect opportunity for where government has the appropriate lever to get uh, a lot of affordable housing in a multi-use uh, multi-income development all around the train station. We have the appropriate lever there to demand uh, that that development has more than 20% affordable housing. Uh, and I get that, like, some of my free market folks um, who were maybe happy with my previous answer on the Duncan, maybe dissatisfied with me on this one, we have the appropriate lever in that site. We need to ensure that uh, that, that is multi-income housing. Uh, for all families and anyone who lives there deserves the right to come back and live there at the new development as well. Well, Lamar, you spoke about how, I guess it was around starting mid-April or mid-May, this last legislative session became more focused on the budget. Were you able to accomplish anything in the committee or any other priorities this past session? Yes. Uh, so in the committee, we were actually able to do some interesting things. Uh, we Interacting with the city of New Haven, uh, there are a series of like you know, traffic development and roadway design issues that they wanted to, to handle. So we're able to get that done. Um, we were able to uh, put focuses in on uh, housing development and where that was located and resources uh, to invest in urban areas. We were able to do some brownfield-related work uh, to start local land banks around brownfields to make sure uh, that it was easier to develop challenging parcels inside of cities. We were able to get funding towards uh, things in New Haven that we wanted to see, like CT Transit site, old CT Transit site on James Street needed additional dollars again to get that up and going. Um, that's going to be a nice How tech is that hub. going in the district? Our readers were asking today. They're not seeing much progress yet. It was supposed to be done by now. It was supposed to be done by now. It's a new tech incubator. I have a uh, tour with David Salinas, I believe, that's the developer. either this week or next week to kind of get an update on where that's going. Um, my aide is actually putting together now, so I'll get a, a more firsthand look at what's happening. Uh, I know that they ran into some, some challenges uh, in that site, but uh, I think they have it under control, and I'll get a more... You're part, you're part of the group. Now, should we be optimistic after what happened last week with Democrats, or did they just win in places like Virginia and New Jersey that were blue before anyway? We have groups like Hamden Pan, progressive groups in the suburbs in Connecticut that have started to organize for progressive causes. We'll be helping you next year trying to get Democrats elected. But people say between redistricting and the narrative that the Democrats are running in retreat from, that they shouldn't get their hopes up. Yeah, we should. 2018 is going to be a good year. Gosh, we. I would love to say that 2017 portends a great 2018. I don't think that we can we can hold on to that too strongly. I know that groups like Action Together Connecticut, Hamden Pan, there are some great groups in this area, and there are great groups across the state. They've got to main, remain vigilant and active and organize and get more and more people. Uh, because we are going up against a well-financed operation in Connecticut, CBIA, the Republican Party. Uh, they, they have been working together with the Yankee Institute. They have that structure in place that we have not developed on the Democratic side. The right has a structure that's worked well for them for six cycles. We should not pretend that what happened in New Jersey is naturally going to happen. So where, where are you going to be in the trenches? Oh, I'll be probably in a, in a variety of uh, suburban and, and uh, second-ring suburban towns trying to make sure that our message gets through. 
All right. Well, I hope you still have time to stop by Dateline New Haven always. and WNHS Radio because it is always great to have you on, Roland. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you. Were born for radio. <laughs> Are you saying I'm not attractive enough for television? Is I'm not it? saying that at all. I just have no expertise. When there, it comes okay. To TV. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Roland. Thank you for joining us today in Dateline New Haven and WNHH. Thanks to our guest, State Rep. Roland Lamar. We're taking it out today with the Afro-Sigmatic experience, but not with our usual song, but with Eliyahu Hanavi. Eliza the Prophet may come speedily in our days. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us in New Haven's home for community radio, WNHH. (laughs) 